Well, since we finished our study of Daniel uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had decided it would be beneficial to revisit a few issues regarding Bible prophecy. We talk about it periodically over the years, and given the way world events seem to be headed, I wanted to clarify with you where I stand on the rapture issue and the second coming of our Savior. And so we are, we last week, of course, looked at a number of issues regarding the rapture, and we're going to look at a couple of other things this week, one more week next week, and then we'll be on to something else. Almost 32 years ago, on September 11th of 1990, of course, not the infamous September 11th, 2001, but September 11th of 1990, uh, on the eve of the Persian Gulf War with Iraq and Saddam Hussein, uh, then President George Bush, George Bush the Elder, uh, said these words before a joint session of Congress. He said, "A new partnership of nations has become has has begun, and we stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move toward an historic period of cooperation." Out of these troubled times, one of our objectives, a new world order, can emerge. A new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. An era in which the nations of the world, east, west, north, and south, can prosper and live in harmony. A hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace, while a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor. And today, that new world is struggling to be born. A world quite different from the one we've known. A world where the rule of law supplants the rule of the jungle. A rule in which nations recognize the shared responsibility for freedom and justice. And a world where the strong respect the rights of the weak. Which, of course, is not what's still happening, nor will it ever until Jesus Christ reigns. But uh, I thought as I read that again this week, boy, he had a great speechwriter. But uh, those remarks that he made raised many eyebrows among Bible-believing folks 32 years ago, as it was the first time anybody remembered a public official using the term New World Order in public. It's since been used publicly by many others, Henry Kissinger, former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, and, uh, and just this past week, our current president said to a quarterly gathering, of American business CEOs. He said, there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. There are very many uh, interesting things going on in our world today. There is a new world order coming. Sometimes it's called the Great Reset. Sometimes it's called Agenda 2030. Sometimes it's called a globalism, a, a globalism initiative or other terms. But it is coming, and it will eventually culminate in the rise of the Antichrist, and his worldwide totalitarian government, which we've seen from several perspectives in our study of the book of Daniel over these past months. But we, we are not looking for the Antichrist. We are looking for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as, as Titus 2.13 says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the coming of Christ is the culmination of, of all things, the ultimate purpose of God that fulfills all the other purposes of God, the total and final revelation of the glory of God. The, the, the coming of Christ brings together all the fulfillments of all the promises of God from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. 
Bible students who have listed and categorized by type all the portions of Scripture tell us that one-third of the Bible is prophecy. The coming of Jesus brings together all of those prophecies. As the angel told Daniel, or sorry, told uh, John in uh, Revelation 19 and verse 10, he said, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony or the message of Jesus is the spirit or the essence of all true prophecy. So as the governments of the world and the economies of the world and various happenings of the world begin to line up, we know that the world is being prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you would today turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. I want to read to you this morning a few verses. We won't do a deep dive into every single phrase of this passage this morning, but I want you to see something foundational to our understanding of Bible prophecy. Revelation 20, we're just going to read the first seven verses. <coughs> Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And on the text goes to explain what is going to take place uh, there. In these seven verses, you see the phrase, thousand years spoken of six times six times in seven verses and if we take this plainly we understand that there is a period of time that is apparently going to last a thousand years again it's used six times in seven verses Revelation 19 has described, if you were to read back in that chapter, the triumphant return of Christ with his heavenly army as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, destroying the armies of the Antichrist and capturing the Antichrist and the false prophet, casting them into the lake of fire. Then the devil will be bound, as we read just a moment ago, and thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years so he can't deceive anyone during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Then he's released at the end of the thousand years and he instigates one final rebellion against God. But my point in this passage that I'm emphasizing with you is that if we believe, as, as I, I mean I certainly believe, that this 1,000 years is a real literal period of time in which Jesus Christ will rule on this earth for a thousand years in fulfillment of hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, and this plain, literal understanding of this passage 
is the foundation of our understanding of every other prophetic passage. If this is literal, then everything else regarding the coming of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on earth for a thousand years also has to be literal. If this is figurative or symbolic or allegorical, then so must be everything else. So what you do uh, with these few verses becomes essential to your entire understanding of Bible prophecy. If the thousand years are literally a thousand years, then the seven-year tribulation is literally seven years. And the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments are real. The battle of Armageddon is real. The Garden of Eden-like conditions that the Old Testament prophets said would return to earth during Christ's reign, they are real. It's all real and it's going to happen if this is a real thousand years. If this is symbolic, then it's all symbolic. And none of it's going to literally happen. You may be thinking, okay, Pastor, why are you hammering this so much? Well, I'm not really trying to hammer it, but there are many folks out there who profess to know and love the Lord, and I don't doubt their salvation, but they do not believe this is a literal thousand years. Uh, it, 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 it totally changes their entire view of Bible prophecy. What kind of millennium, which is what thousand years, just another word, that's a Latin word for thousand years. What kind of millennium this is, is the foundational bedrock for whatever you wind up believing about Bible prophecy. I take it at face value. I take it for what it says, and so that flavors my entire understanding of Bible prophecy. Now you might ask yourself, you might ask me, so why do others who claim to be Bible believers, not take it for what it says. It seems relatively plain if you read it that he's not talking about some indefinite period of time. I mean, he says, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released. They're going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. They're going to throw, him in the, throw Satan in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Well, why, why would people not just take that for what it says? Well, I can't read their minds, but based on their writings, and this goes way, way back. This is not a recent development. It goes way, way back. I think there are at least two reasons. The first one is this. That some, some church leaders in the second and third centuries, remember we're going way back, they were influenced very strongly by Greek philosophies. And they came to believe that the scriptures had two interpretations. One was the plain, literal interpretation, the one that probably everybody could see. And secondly, there, there was some deep, mystical, spiritual interpretation that only a few special people could see, which of course they happened to be on that list. And because prophecy seemed to be full of symbolism and metaphors and so forth, then it must have a deep, mystical meaning. Another reason uh, well, that, that I think they, they have wound up with at this position is that early church folks were expecting Jesus Christ to come back pretty soon. You may remember the story in the Gospel of John in chapter 21. Jesus has died. He has been resurrected. He's with his disciples that 40 days on the earth. And, and in John chapter 21, Jesus is with the disciples on the beach uh, they're at the Sea of Galilee. They're eating some fish for breakfast. Uh, Jesus has his little confrontation with Peter, his rebuke with Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love it. You know that story. We've talked about it many times. And right after that, Jesus foretells 
Peter's martyrdom. He says, Peter, one day people are going to stretch your hands out and they are going to carry you to a place where you don't want to go. Everyone understood that, meaning Jesus was saying one day Peter would be crucified. It was about 35 years down the road yet, but it did happen, of course. And, and, and of course, after Jesus says that to Peter, Peter looks over at John, the apostle John, who's writing this story, and he says, oh Lord, what about this man? Typical thought, you know, if I'm going to die for Christ, how about my buddy John here, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus looks at John, actually he looks at Peter, and he says, and he says, if I desire him to live until I return, what is that to you? Follow me. And so John, who's writing this story, actually that's, that's great advice. You know, God's, the Lord Jesus says to Peter, don't worry about what I do with other people. You just worry about what I do with you. You follow me, Peter. But John, who's writing this, says, because Jesus said that, there was a saying that went out among the disciples that, that I wasn't going to die. He says, although Jesus didn't really say that, all he said was, if it's my will for him to live until I come back, then don't let that bother you. So Jesus didn't say, John writes, Jesus didn't say I wasn't going to die. He just said, if it was his will that I didn't, that I lived to see him come back, don't, then, then don't worry about it. But that, that very thought there of people looking at John as a young man, the youngest of all the apostles, saying, hey, he might live until Jesus came back. The Apostle Paul, remember we were in last week in that great rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. He was talking about the dead in Christ rising and he said, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Paul thought at, at that point in his life, Paul thought he might live to see the coming of Christ. Of course, we know later on he realized he wasn't going to live to see the coming of Christ. And as he wrote to, uh, to his son in the faith, Timothy, he said that in 2 Timothy, the time of my departure is at hand. He knew he was going to be martyred. Then back to the Apostle John, who wrote the book we call Revelation, around 90 to 100 A.D. He ended the book. The, last, almost the next to the last phrase in Revelation says, Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So you put all of those thoughts together, and the early church expected a soon return of Jesus. They had no idea the church age was going to last 2,000 years. And so as time went on into the 2nd and 3rd centuries, you get up around 400 A.D., Jesus still hadn't come back. 300 years after John said, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 400 years after the, re after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so because of that, the spiritualizers of prophecy said, all this stuff must be symbolic. I mean, we've been, we've been waiting all this time and it hasn't happened. I mean, looking around at our world, it seems almost absurd to think that this is literal. I mean, where are the Jews? You know, Jerusalem's been a pile of rubble for hundreds of years. The nation rejected Jesus. Jews are scattered all over the place. I mean, you know, there's, 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 this just can't be a literal kingdom. Maybe it's a spiritual kingdom. Maybe Jesus is already ruling from heaven. Maybe he's just ruling in our hearts. Maybe the thousand years just means a long time. Surely this can't be literal, because we've been waiting around for almost 400 years now, and, and this hasn't happened yet. Surely Jesus didn't really mean that this was actually going to be a thousand year reign. 
And so you can see from their perspective how one might possibly arrive at some of those conclusions. But now here we are about 400 AD and spiritualizing Bible prophecy among many groups of Bible students became an entrenched part of their theology for 1500 years and is still popular today in some circles. But the only view of Bible prophecy that is consistently literal in its interpretation is what we call premillennial, pre-tribulational. The amillennial and postmillennial folks we talked about a little bit last week, they, they spiritualize almost all of Bible prophecy. The premillennial folks who are not pre-tribulational, they spiritualize parts of Bible prophecy. But pre-tribulational folks like me we see a clear distinction between Israel and the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.32, he mentions, he said, don't be offensive to the Jews, the Gentiles, or the church of God. He makes a distinction there. We'll look possibly next week at Romans 11, where the Apostle Paul makes a very clear distinction between Israel, between national Israel and the church. <clears throat> But when we look at the Bible, we take prophecy literally. We pray, take it for exactly what it says, even if we can't figure out all the details. If Revelation 20 says it's a thousand-year reign of Christ, we think it's a thousand-year reign of Christ. If the devil is going to be bound and thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, he'll be in there for a thousand years. We, we, we take it for exactly what it says. When, when, when Daniel wrote, and we looked at this many, many weeks ago, we spent about four weeks looking at that prophecy of the 77s in Daniel chapter 9. That, that, that is a time designated, Daniel said, as a time of purifying and ultimate salvation for the nation of Israel. The church, New Testament believers, were not a part of the first 69 sevens in that prophecy, so why should they be a part of the 70th, which is the Great Tribulation, the seven years? Israel and the church are distinct from each other. Jeremiah chapter 30, he calls that tribulation, that seven-year tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time of purifying and ultimate salvation for the nation of Israel. Next week, we're going to talk more about the day of the Lord, and we'll spend some more time in First and Second Thessalonians. We're going to conclude, Lord willing, our little three-week mini-series on these rapture issues. But let me show you an interesting passage here in the book of Revelation. Look back at chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. This passage in, the, in this section of Revelation that we call the Letters to the Seven Churches. You're, maybe if you've looked at the book of Revelation at all over the years, you're familiar with the Letters to the Seven Churches. We preached through them and taught through them many, many years ago, and uh, you may be familiar with them. But that's the section here in Revelation 3. By the way, the word church is mentioned 19 times in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. First three chapters of Revelation. You see the church, the word church appear 19 times where the church is pictured on earth. Revelation 4 and 5 then pictures the church in heaven. Revelation 6 begins the tribulation. And, and from ch chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, we see all sorts of tribulation events. Then Revelation 20 that we just looked at pictures Christ's glorified saints ruling and reigning with him on earth during his thousand-year kingdom. But nowhere 
In chapter 6 through 19, the tribulation section, is the church mentioned. Saints are mentioned, saved people, but church or churches does not appear anywhere in the text. It's 19 times in the first three chapters. Then we see the church in heaven in verse chapter 4 and 5. When the tribulation starts, we don't see any mention of the church until we get all the way to the end of the kingdom. Or all the way into, into the kingdom of the millennium. Another reason why we think the rapture is pre-tribulational. But in this portion of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, we have seven kinds of churches that are described. These churches were real churches in the Apostle John's day, but they also describe the kinds of churches we see in our day. We see a church with no love. We see a persecuted church, a compromising church, a corrupt church, a dead church, a faithful church, and a lukewarm church. They're not on fire. They're not stone cold. They're just kind of lukewarm. And in this section, we're going to look today here in chapter 3 about the faithful church, the church in Philadelphia. The Lord Jesus expresses several promises. And just to, just to clarify, just in case you feel misled, that is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay? Uh, the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was named for this town. This is an ancient Greek town in Asia Minor. Uh, it, 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 today, the ruins of it are in the modern-day country of Turkey, where all these letters to the seven churches, all of these churches, uh, they're, they're, those cities or the ruins of those cities are in the, the western end of the modern-day country of Turkey. So this church in Philadelphia, not PA, okay, this is in, in, in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ expresses several promises. Remember, no church is perfect. If there were a perfect church, we would ruin it by attending it. Because we are not perfect. I certainly couldn't pastor it because I would wreck its perfection. Uh, so when we say this was a faithful church, we're not saying it was a perfect church. We're saying that it was, it was a model of being a faithful, loyal, obedient church for the Lord Jesus. Here, let's, let's read these verses, starting in verse 7, <clears throat> up to verse 13. To the angel in the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice he says, to the churches, plural. Even though this was a letter to this one church, in general it was a letter to all of us. Because he said, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So Jesus here, at the beginning of these verses, Jesus describes himself as being the Holy One, the True One, 
the one who has authority and access to all the kingdom promises. He says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. That is an Old Testament phrase. Actually, it appears in the book of Isaiah chapter 22, referring to the king's right-hand man who had the key of David, the key to access to the palace where the king lived. And so it's a beautiful phrase, the key. Of course, a key unlocks a door. A key gives you access. He says, I have, I have the key to this kingdom that belongs to David's descendant. So he says, I am the holy one. I am the true one. I am the one who has authority and access to all the kingdom promises. I am the one who can open doors and close doors for the church as he wishes. He said, I am all powerful. And you know, we, we see this same kind of picture of God when he says to Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 13, he says, I work and who can reverse it? You remember Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel 4 that we looked at many months ago. Nebuchadnezzar said of the true and living God in Daniel 4.35, he said, no one can restrain his hand or say, what have you done? And the verse we've referred to many times in our study of Daniel, Isaiah 46, where, where, where God says, I am God and there is none like me. I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. And here he says, when I open a door, no man can close it. And when I close a door, no man can open it. I am the holy, true, authoritative, omnipotent, sovereign Lord. And he said, I have something to tell you, O Church of Philadelphia. That might, you might get a little nervous when you hear God talk like that. I'm the holy, true, authoritative, omnipotent, sovereign Lord, and I've got something to say to you, church in Philadelphia. But what he says is really wonderful. He says, I know your works. I know what you have done. And he said, I have set an open door for you, and nobody can close it. He said, you have a little strength. He said, he said you are not a big, powerful organization. But he said, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I love it. And he said, I'm going to honor you in the presence of your enemies. That's what he's talking about there. He said, the, the synagogue of Satan filled with these people who claim to be Jews and they're not and they're lying. He, he said, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to make him come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. He said, I'm going to honor you in the presence of your enemies, and they're going to know that I have loved you. Why? Because he says, because you have kept my command to persevere. Verse 10, you have also, you have kept my command to persevere. Literally means you have kept the word of my patience, the word of my endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is to come upon the whole earth to test those that dwell on the earth. Several observations we want to make about verse 10. One, the test that was coming was in the future. It will come. The test is a definite time period, the hour of testing, and the test is going to affect the whole world. And then, and, and fourthly, it is it is aimed at unbelievers. That uh, the reason why we know that is because that phrase, "those who dwell on the earth," it is used ten times in the book of Revelation. This is the first time here in Revelation three. It's used nine more times 
in Revelation 6-17, through 17, and it always refers to the unbelieving world. I am testing those who dwell on the earth. So we know the test is coming in the future. We know the test is a definite time period. We know the test is going to affect the whole world, and it's, and it's aimed at unbelievers. Those who pass the test are going to repent and turn to the Lord. Those who fail the test are going to continue in rebellion against God, and they're going to face eternal judgment. But Jesus himself tells this church, he said, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now, most every premillennial Bible student believes this is a promise to the church regarding the Great Tribulation. Post-tribulational Bible students who think Jesus is coming at the end of the tribulation, they think this, a, this is a promise of preservation through the tribulation. Pre-tribulational Bible students, which I am, believe it is a promise of deliverance from the tribulation. Of course, you know where I stand on all that issue. I believe it is a promise of deliverance from the hour of trial. Why? Because from, from the very time of testing, several reasons. First of all, the meaning of the phrase, keep from, means out of or away from. There's a little preposition in the Greek text that just... just just two letters, ek. In, in English, it'd be ek. Little, little preposition, ek, in the Greek text. It means out of or away from. There is another little preposition, en, which means in. And another little preposition, dia, which means through. But Jesus didn't say he would keep them in the hour or through the hour. He said he'd keep them ek, out of or away from the hour. Of testing. And, and as we read Revelation 6 through 19, we see that many people are going to turn to Christ during the tribulation and they're going to be martyred. We see them in, in, in chapter 7 and other places. So to be preserved through the tribulation doesn't really seem to be the promise here. It seems to be Jesus is saying, I will keep you from, away from the hour of trial which is going to come upon those who dwell upon the earth. But you know, the promises don't stop there. Verses 11 to 13. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one take your crown. And this verse 12 is just, it is such a beautiful verse. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Jesus says, when it comes, it's all going to happen fast. I'm coming quickly. Hang on. Be faithful. Don't quit. And I see three promises to God there in verse, in verse, uh, that God makes, makes to us in verse, in verse 13, verse 12 rather. <coughs> He says, I'm going to give you eternal security. He said, I'm, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar is permanent. It's rock solid. It's stable. It's there. He said, I'm going to give you eternal security. Secondly, he says, I'm going to give you eternal citizenship. He said, I'm going to write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to give you eternal citizenship. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, you know what citizenship has. Citizenship has privileges. You have things as a citizen of a country that, in fact, in, in, in John's day, to be a Roman citizen, man, you had rights that nobody had. 
Because there were loads of people living in the Roman Empire who were not Roman citizens. But if you were a Roman citizen, you had some privileges, a whole list of them that nobody else had. And so God says, I'm going to make you a temple in my God. He said, I'm going to write the name of, of, of the city of my God, write the name of my God. I'm going to write it on you. You're going to be a citizen eternally. You're going to have eternal privileges in the kingdom of God. And he said, then thirdly, I'm going to give you eternal relationship. He said, I'm going to write on you my name. You're going to belong to me. I'm going to give you eternal security. I'm going to give you eternal citizenship. I'm going to give you eternal relationship. Do you realize that Bible prophecy is actually an expression of the promises of God? By, by definition, a, a promise speaks, speaks of hope. It speaks uh, of a clear intention that something is going to happen. Promises create expectation and excitement because we're, we're looking forward to something. The fulfillment of a promise is based on the character of the promise giver and, and the ability of the promise giver to deliver on the promise. If I looked at you and said, you know, man, I, man, I, just, I really like you, Tom. I'm going to give you a million dollars next week. He'd laugh. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, you really have the ability to do that, Larry. Sure, yeah, you're right. Well, I don't have the ability to do that. It's a stupid promise. I can't do it. You see, the, the, the ability to, or the, the fulfillment of a promise is based on the character of the promise giver and the ability of the promise giver to deliver. Which makes it all the more powerful when Jesus says, I am the Holy One. I'm the true one. I'm the one who's got the keys of David. I'm the one who opens and closes doors. And, no, and with the ones I open, nobody can close. And the ones I close, nobody can open. And I say, this is what's going to happen to you. You see, Bible prophecy is God telling us what he is going to do. And it is filled, Bible prophecy is filled with beautiful promises for the Lord's people. Some of you may be familiar with that grand old book, Pilgrim's Progress. Second most popular book in the world. The first most popular book in the world is the Bible. More copies sold of the Bible than any book in the history of the world. Pilgrim's Progress is number two. And I'll brag a little bit, written by one of my illustrious ancestors. Probably my only illustrious ancestor. Pilgrim's Progress, of course, written in jail. The, or the John, John Bunyan, writing from jail because he would not take a, a government license to preach. Put him in jail for 12 years. While he was there, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Beautiful picture. It's an allegory. It's a picture of his, his main character is a guy named Christian. And he's, work, he's working his way through life. He's walking down the road of life in this world. And he has all kinds of pitfalls and troubles and trials. And, and I mean, it's really kind of a beautiful... If you ever try to read it, read one of the modern versions. Because if you read the one from the 1600s, it'll be tough to follow. But, but in, in this wonderful, memorable scene from Pilgrim's Progress, Christian finds the pathway kind of difficult. And he climbs over a gate. He sees over on the side. It looks like there's really this nice, smooth, green grass meadow. Hey, I think oh, this, this road's kind of rocky. It's a little tough. I think I'll climb the fence and walk over there. And so he, he, he starts walking. But as he, as, as he gets further up that trail, the ground gets soggy. 
and it's covered with poisonous vines and the sky turns black and Christian spends the night huddled down at the foot of an old oak tree and caught in this downpour and the next morning the giant, a giant named Despair comes and grabs him, captures him and beats him and throws him in his, and throws him in his castle called Doubting Castle. And he throws him in the dungeon of Doubting Castle in, in the dark with these thick black walls. And, and, and Christian is there. <coughs> Excuse me. He, he tries to sing and he can't sing. And, and, and his mood is like, is like despair. And he's in this, this dungeon in the castle of doubt. Every day the giant of despair comes by and beats him mercilessly. He gets, he gets weaker and weaker every day. Finally one day in his cell he finds a rope and a knife and a bottle. And he says, hey... I could just use these and take my life. I could just kill myself. And then, and then it'll just end all my misery. But then that night he began to pray. And he began to pour his heart out to the Lord. And, and as the story goes, a little bit before day, Christian, as one amazed, broke out in this passionate speech like, What an idiot am I! To lie in this stinking dungeon when I could be outside walking in liberty. Why? I just remembered I have a key inside my shirt and that key is called promise. And I am sure that that key called promise will open any lock in Doubting Castle. And so Christian pulls out the key of promise, the promises of God. He goes and he unlocks his cell and he gets out and he comes to the gate of Doubting Castle and he, and he unlocks it and out he is and, and he's out in the sunshine again praising God, using the key of God's promises. He escaped never again, as the story goes, to fall into the clutches of the giant of despair or the Doubting Castle. The Bible is filled with promises of God. And Bible prophecy is a part of those promises. God says, I'll give you eternal security. I will give you eternal citizenship. I will give you eternal relationship. Keep my word. You have not denied my name. You have kept my word. I will keep you from the hour of testing that's going to come on the earth. Don't fear the future. Don't fear hard times. Don't fear the end times. Because if you have the promises of God, you have everything. Let's pray. Lord, what a blessing it is to have the Scripture. What a blessing it is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to have your presence with us, and to have a Bible filled with the promises of God. Lord, it's very easy for us as we look around at this sin-cursed world and we look around at all the troubles on this planet, very easy for us to, to let the giant of despair throw us into Doubting Castle. But Lord, we have the promises of God. We have our Savior, the Holy and True One, who is authoritative and omnipotent and sovereign. And you have promised us eternal security. And, and eternal citizenship and eternal relationship. And we believe, Lord, you have promised to keep us from the hour of trial that is to come upon the earth. Not to say we won't have troubles, not to say we won't have tribulations, we won't have times of suffering as God's people suffer all over this world even today.
But we do believe you'll keep us from that hour of testing that you're going to pour out on the earth one of these days. Lord, in the meanwhile, may we never fall prey to the giant of despair and doubting castle. May we use the key of the promises of God. Because if we have your promises, Lord, we know we have everything. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.